the evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. Good afternoon, my name is Chad Thomas. You're listening to Confidential Brief, live in Johannesburg on 101.9 FM and broadcasting worldwide com. I must apologize if there's going to be glitches in this show this morning. Um, we are trying something different for the first time, which is relating to um, being able to communicate via um, remote means. And in this regard, I'm chatting to my guest in Cape Town today via Skype. I am also at Skype um, at home as our station has implemented isolation um, level two um, protocols in respect of of face-to-face communication. My company that I'm also employed with has also um, employed very similar um, protocols, and it's something that we need to get used to. So today is very unusual for me. Um, I'm not sitting in studio. I'm not with my um, with my engineer Craig. I'm sitting in front of of Skype, and I'm communicating with our guest Craig down in Cape Town. Before we get to Craig, um, I'd just like to send our condolences to the families of. Um, the late um, Saul Kersner, who passed away yesterday um, after suffering an illness. Um, he obviously changed the landscape in South Africa, if not worldwide, when it came to hospitality and hotels. And, of course, we also lost the great Kenny Rogers, one of my favorite artists of all time. As I said, today is going to be a strange show based on the fact that this is the first time we've tried something like this. So please bear with us. There are going to be glitches. But um, I'm going to try my absolute best to be able to get through these glitches to bring you the best possible show. Before we take a break and speak to Craig, I'd like to remind you that the views expressed on the show are not necessarily those of Chai FM. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on Chai FM. Welcome back to Confidential Brief. As I said, today is very unique for us, um, but there's some ad- advantages to to being able to to host a remote show without a face-to-face um, studio interview with our guests. In that, we can now Skype. So a gentleman I've been trying to get on air every time he comes up to Johannesburg and has not been able to due to his hectic schedule. We're now able to chat to via Skype in Cape Town. I welcome Craig Pedersen to the show. Hey, Chad. Thanks so much for having me on the show, mate. Um, yeah, it's been a, a little bit of an up and down trying to get around and travel, so I must admit the Skype thing, it might be a bit rocky. We'll see how it goes, but I think it'll work out just fine for us and grateful for the opportunity to get on the air with you. Well, our station's committed to, to still bringing live broadcasts to our listeners we're trying not to bore them with repeats, etc. So apart from news and important updates, we're going to try to keep our shows live so that things can try flow during these really extraordinary and exceptional times. And um, that brings me, obviously, to, to, to my first question to you. We're living in a digital age as we're experiencing today on um, on radio. You and I are not face-to-face. I'm not in studio. We're able to communicate via um, the great um, success that the digital age has brought us. And our topic today with you is very similar. It's, it's based around investigators now having access to this incredible Internet, this incredible World Wide Web, and how they're now able to use open source intelligence to investigate crimes. Now, that sounds quite complicated. I'm an old-fashioned knock-on-door detective. So help my listeners to understand what is open source intelligence. 
Chad, I think oh, that's the best place to start. You know, the the world of open source intelligence is actually not that new. It's just taking it into the the digital age that's new. I mean, one of the first recorded incidents of OSINT actually being used would be somewhere around the First World War where the German Kaiser set up a little unit of his own and their sole job was to trawl the daily newspapers and the shipping times to have a look at which vessels were moving where, what their cargo was, who was on board, what their capacities were, and to use publicly available information out of shipping manifests and newspapers to create intelligence-based information. And obviously over the years, you know, things have been evolved through the 80s and 90s with the advent of uh, the Internet and then the sudden explosion of the amount of data that is available on the Internet, that skill set has become more and more advanced. And it's quite a core element of any law enforcement and type intelligence environment in the modern age. And particularly so for investigators. You know, as you say, we grew up in a era where you want a suspect while well, you get in your car and you go door to door. These days, it makes just more practical sense to hop on the Internet first and understand which doors are probably going to yield the best results. Uh, social media, public records, open databases, these all give us information that's useful to advance the investigative skills that we're used to using. So, Craig, you did a launch recently, and this was in, in the wake of the book that you published. And this is not the first book you've published. I'm fortunate to have uh, copies of your other books as well that relate to community policing, etc. What made you reach the point that you decided it was necessary to put a book together to help other investigators in terms of the use of open source intelligence? You know, Chad, um, I, I grew up much like yourself as a conventional investigator. Um, I have an intelligence background predominantly in commercial intelligence where much of our work was done via human sources and a little bit scary around here and there and then open source. And it comes from seeing so many of my colleagues that have struggled with the transition to digital and they're extremely, extremely good investigators, but they just don't know how to bridge that gap. They know the information is potentially out there, but they don't know where is it, how to stitch it together, in what order, and how to use one piece of information to move to another, to another, to get to an answer. So the impetus for, for the book was largely helping conventional investigators bridge that gap, show them that the inter Internet's not an intimidating place to be. You just need somebody to kind of take you by the hand, really, and show you where to find what it is that you're looking for. Uh, so that you can accelerate the process and the case closure time and also open up new options and new directions to tracing suspects, to stitching evidence together in the chain of communication, to highlighting that corrupt relationships exist. As you know, that's a big issue in South Africa where we have corruption at all levels, in the commercial segment and in the government sector, where relationships exist between parties that shouldn't really be there or shouldn't be at the stage that they are. And you're not, you're not just needing to investigate those, but you are actually having to evidence them. 
uh, at the same time, we've seen more and more cybercrime investigations coming in, investigations around social media activities. I mean, we're all familiar with Penny Sparrow, etc., and that's not even the tip of the iceberg. Um, and it's a desire to help investigators move into the digital environment and leverage the data that's there. Well, I think that's so important because you, you made specific mention in assisting an investigator to get to another point. Um, recently, we had the Insurance Crime Bureau's annual conference, and the whole purpose of the conference, the theme of the conference, was the sharing of resources in, in being able to obtain information and intelligence that will assist in reducing crime specifically in that sector. Now, on a side note, um, we recently elected a new um, CPF chair in our community, um, Colin Wasserfall, and as a gift to him when he was made um, chair of the CPF, I actually gifted him a book that you, you, you published quite some time ago, which relates to community policing forums, sector policing, and the challenges police stations face, etc., based on your experience in monitoring Cape Town. So you're basically on the same page as a lot of other people going forward in respect to the fact that intelligence and information isn't something we should hold close to our chest. It's something we should be sharing. Well, Chad, and then some. Um, you know, if I if I sit back sometimes and I think that my life in, the, in and around the security industry started well, a good 25, 30 years ago, and I think how difficult it was to acquire learning material and that everything was person-to-person learning, nothing was written down because it was too cloak and dagger, really. If we don't take the time to sit down and put down what we know and share it to the next generation, we're doing an enormous disservice to our profession going forward because we're actively stilting the learning of newcomers to the industry. And our industry is going to suffer as a result of that. And we need to, we need to be a bit more aggressive about it. We need to actually share the information that we have, to share the perspectives that we have, and some of the school of hard knock stuff that we've learned. Otherwise the industry, the, the industry is going to stagnate, and eventually, who's going to benefit from it? The criminals. You know, crime is just going to get out of control. We're not going to be able to control it. We need to share the skills that we have. And I need to understand though, where does, where does open source intelligence gathering stop? And we, and we now have to take cognizance of restrictions in terms of acts that have been instituted in respect of, of, of the constitution that enshrines one's right to privacy. Oh yes. Okay. Good call there. Um, <clears throat> the line between privacy and open source is obviously one that you've got to tread quite carefully. Um, open source, the, the closest definition I can think of to actually give you all explanation would be is if somebody puts a piece of paper on a table in an open area, uh, a spa, checkers, shop, right, whatever, and they put a piece of paper on the table. That information would be open source. Anybody walking past can read it. If, however, the paper was turned upside down and you knew it was there, but you had to turn that paper to see the data, that's not really open source anymore. That's now more of a restricted data set. And as far as humanly possible, our resources are stuck and limited. We call the line at even if we can see a set of data, 
and we know that the data has got a password of admin and admin. We can see it. We're still not going to go for that data. We're still not going to use it anyway. Why? Because it's crossing the line from open source into people's privacy. Um, when one looks at the amount of data that is available out there, it's actually quite frightening. Um, you'll have seen, for example, the number of scams that go around uh, via email where people will add a little bit of influence to their scam mails by saying, ah, this is what you were doing online. I've got it on record, and you're going to have to pay me a couple of bucks to expunge the record. Otherwise, I'm going to show it to all your friends and family. And if you don't believe me, this is your name and your password starts with. And it gives you the first couple of uh, lead characters from your password. That information comes off of databases that are available online of data breaches where people's usernames and passwords have been leaked out onto the Internet, and they're just concatenating that information with a scam mail in order to give it credibility and get people closer to paying them. And typically those scams are low yield. You know, they're they're saying, give me a 1000 bucks by e-wallet, otherwise I'm going to release this data to your family. If the, if the recipient has got anything whatsoever to worry about on his conscience, he's probably going to pay the money rather than kick up a fuss for a 1000 bucks. And that's where breached information and scams join together, and you get a really successful scam. Uh, that data is out there. It's available. People should be hitting up sites like haveibeenpawned.com on a regular basis to check that their passwords haven't been pawned. Uh, pawnage is where your, your conventional username and password combination are leaked by a site or the data is lost in a hack. And that data, data is readily available on the Internet. So if you don't check that your password hasn't been pawned, there's a likelihood somebody's going to get to it. They could even get into your Gmail, get into your personal stuff. Uh, by knowing it's been pawned, you've got a heads up, and you can very quickly go and change those passwords, lock it down, and reclaim your privacy. Well, thank you. That's our first tip of the day. We're chatting to Craig Pedersen about open source intelligence. We'll be continuing the conversation shortly after this. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. You're listening to Confidential Brief on, like I've said earlier, a very extraordinary day for us. It's our very first remote broadcast where our guest is also remote. Uh, we're not in studio with all the um, gadgets, timing, and, of course, my great studio engineer, Craig, to time me down. So please bear with us should there be any glitches, if things should sound a little bit strange. It's because we're practicing isolation, which is most probably the best way to try to prevent the spread of this virus. We're going to be chatting about open source intelligence and the COVID um, virus a little bit later in the show. But I'd first like to take something up with Craig, which, which he said to me a little bit earlier, which really struck a nerve. Craig, you mentioned that uh, scammers are also making use of open source intelligence. So it's not just the investigators that have access to this. Basically, anybody has access to this. So it's virtually a double-edged sword. Oh, hell yes. Uh, you know, Chad, I, I, I would love to say that only people on the right side of the line are using open source intelligence, but there, there's no way. Uh, we see it on a regular basis where scammers are using open source tools 
to profile their suspects. One of the common scams that does the rounds is that they will target somebody online. They'll send them a friend request over, say, Facebook. The person then accepts the friend request. They start to chat. There's a bit of banter. And then they'll move the conversation to WhatsApp. The moment the conversation moves to WhatsApp, they start hitting them with a couple of saucy, semi-pornographic pictures. And then comes the request. I'm going to show this to your wife whose name is Deirdre or whatever it is, uh, and this is her phone number and this is where she works. I'm going to be needing 1500 bucks. You give it to me or I show it to her. Now, where that scam starts is they're actually doing their homework first, and they're targeting a specific demographic, and the demographic is generally white male businessmen who own their own businesses between the ages of 28 and 35. That's the chosen demographic. And they're looking only at the guys are married that are married. They have no interest in singles. They want to see guys married or he's got a long-term girlfriend because they know they can put him on a spot. So as much as we use open source intelligence for suspect tracing, profiling of suspects and intelligence gathering, uh, yeah, these guys are doing it on the scammer side as well, and unfortunately, they're doing it pretty well. Well, that's our, our second tip for the day, because what, what you're referring to um, in our circles, we refer to as sextortion. And this is where people are obtaining your details on Facebook. They, they're checking to see who shared publicly their marital or relationship status. They're seeing which are the easy targets, because the guy's talking about his business, showing off his Mercedes-Benz etc. And so it begins. So prevention, of course, is the best adage here, much the same as COVID. Do not, do not engage with people you don't know. What other advice can you give with regards to sextortion, okay? Well, but you know, if I, if I stick to the fundamentals, uh, exactly as you say, uh, if you're getting friend requests from people you don't know, don't accept them. If somebody randomly walked up to you in public and said, hey, what's your phone number? It's not like you're going to give it to them. Don't do it online. You know, be careful what you give out, out online. Make sure your children are being cautious what they, with what they give out online. Uh, one of the common ways in which we track down suspects is that we will check their social media platforms and presences. And we actually have found a number of them over the years where it's it's easy because the guy is checking in at Club Duvet. Thanks. Now I have your home address with an accuracy of 2.5 meters. I mean, couldn't ask for better. On the flip side, do you really want to be giving all and sundry your home address? So checking in at home and checking in at Club Duvet is cute and all. But you really shouldn't be giving out that information. Tell me about these geotags that people are talking about. I know a while ago there was a there was a huge movement to prevent people from taking pictures with their with their smartphones of endangered species while they were in game reserves, etc. They said, should you upload it to your social media platform, people can actually see a geotag of where you were. What is that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, let's take a good example. Twitter, for example, uh, only stopped automatic geotagging around September last year. So what was happening is as people were moving around and tweeting and uploading photographs and carrying on their day-to-days, they were blissfully unaware that the default setting on their cell phones was to geotag their tweets. And if you had the right tool, 
and went online, put in somebody's Twitter address, it would show you the hotspots of where they tweet from by habit. And that's obviously going to be home. So you just filter it out to the tweets that are happening between, say, 10 o'clock at night and 3 o'clock in the morning. And you will have someone's home address within an accuracy of a few meters. Now, obviously, where there were instances of people uh, visiting wildlife reserves, taking photographs of endangered species, uh, it becomes a problem because, thanks very much, they've just tagged where that reserve is and where they are in the reserve. Unintentional, but still it's being used adversely. A lot of the social media strands have become a little bit more wary of uh, geotagging now. And Twitter, for one, has no longer made it a default option. You you have to elect to use it. Uh, but let's take another popular one. Uh, Johannesburg, for example, my trips up to Joburg. There are many things I can do without and leave at home when I'm working up that side. My cell phone and access to Waze is not one of them because I'll be lost in about 10 minutes on your highways. Uh, I need ways. It's the only way I'm able to navigate your highways and byways. But when you look closely, you'll also see that when you signed up for ways, you gave away your privacy. You gave them permission to broadcast your position. So if you go and look on ways at, uh, on the way home this evening, you'll see it will tell you there's 850 wazers nearby. I think we've all seen that. If you access it from a desktop and you know the person's username, you can actually access their position up to about two and a half minutes ago. The delay is normally two and a half to three minutes. Now, what are the chances that the username they chose on Waze is the same quirky little username that they use on Twitter or as an Instagram handle? Um, it's a commonality and it's habit. They're going to stick to it. And people are actively tracked and stalked sometimes using a simple tool like Waze because they didn't take the time to read what they were giving away in terms of privacy. There's a golden rule that we work to. If something is for free, your data is the product. Everything in life has a product. And if you're getting it for free, your data, your habits, that is the product someone else is buying it. We're learning a lot today. We're going to take a song break now. Um, and of course, when everybody hears the song, they'll understand why we're playing the song today. But um, when we come back, we're going to be chatting more to, to Craig about how you can protect yourself online. And more importantly, how you can perhaps use the tools that Craig is chatting about in his book to be able to come closer to finding out what's going on in and around you. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. I'm in conversation today with Craig Pedersen. It's a remote conversation. It's the first time that our show has broadcast remotely. So if there have been any technical glitches for that, we do apologize. But we want to bring you the best content live during this COVID-19 crisis. We just listened to the song The Gambler by Kenny Rogers. And it was quite interesting the way the song begins, Craig. It's almost as if he's describing somebody who's involved in human intelligence gathering, the way he profiles individuals as a gambler. The gambler profiles his people that he's going to be playing against. And human intelligence has been something so valuable over the years. And now we've moved across to open source intelligence. How do we take the open source intelligence and then bring it back into the real world to track down the suspects? Actually, I, I, I quite like the analogy with that song because it's very true. Um, you know, 
P- personality typing and profiling is as old as the hills. And yeah, Gambler would be a perfect, perfect example of that. He's got to understand the people that are, that are at the table with him. And he's going to use a lot of different skills to understand them and what makes them tick and how they're likely to play their hand. A lot of the time we do the same thing on social media. We're, uh, we're looking for a suspect that's disappeared. For example, he's gone to ground. And, okay, I don't want to give too much off over the air, but what we'll do is we'll, we'll look particularly at their habits and their proclivities. What do they do? What do they like to do? How often do they do it? Where do they do it? Uh, we had a case about two weeks ago where a gentleman has disappeared with a large sum of money. And he's just gone, no trace, no track, nothing. Uh, but the one thing that is consistent is everybody that we've spoken to tells us that he's fanatical about cycling and, of course, his bicycle went missing with him. Um, so you can guess where the first place is that we went to look for him. <laughs> that that would be the results from the August cycle tour. And lo and behold, despite running away with a fairly large pile of someone else's money, uh, Mr. decided to attend the cycle tour anyway. Um, it's not hard to profile people if you know how and where to look using basic, basic social media strands. Uh, the kind of things that we teach people within the book and within training for investigators, particularly how to analyze and understand your subject. Who are they? What makes them tick? What makes them excited, happy, scared? Uh, so you can be predictive in their movements. What are they going to do next? If you go back to, oh God, we're both old souls and you did your national service as well as far as I remember. I was permanent force. Yep. Hundred, even better. Okay. So you remember that all those years ago, um, some of the most magnificent guys out there in uniform were the trackers because they could tell from a footprint. Um, how fast a person was running, what their state of health was, the direction they were going, whether they had a heavy kit on or not, uh, the quality of shoe or boot that they had on, where it most likely came from. And they could look at a simple spur, and they could tell you so much about the people that you were chasing. Open source is exactly the same. We can look at a simple comment that somebody's posted on social media, and it's going to give away little bits of inflection on their personality. Where are they? Where could they be? Where are they going to go next? And it's stitching together all those little pieces of information, much the same as a tracker would. Um, we're just using a digital technology instead of a spur and a digital footprint instead of a spur. Absolutely fascinating. Just to let you know, I started off in the military police, did a core transfer to intelligence where our bulky trains to a jackal, or as you in Cape Town would prefer to say, a jackalus. But um, the song, the song The Gambler just brought back memories because so many of our fraud suspects in the past have actually been gamblers themselves, and that's how we've tracked them down. We've either been able to, to push them into a corner by forcing them to go to a certain place to place bets, or we've been able to pick them up there. And a couple of examples that come to mind, David Powell, who you'll remember we arrested in Cape Town in your mm-hmm. in your yep. um, neck of the woods. We forced him to be able to only go to bookkeep, uh, a book, a bookmakers because we, we circulated him countrywide to all the casinos. We knew he, he loved gambling in the casinos, and his second love was horse racing. When he couldn't get to the casinos, he had to, he had to go back to his second love, which was horse racing. 
and we were able to get information via the Bookmakers Association as to where he was taking bets, etc. We had another case with Karin Roberts, who spent many of her her suspects, um, her victims rather, money at the at, at the casino near Brackpan, and then of course. We had another case which was well publicized where we tracked the suspects as well as her son to, to a casino in PE. So it's just very strange how you, you, you hit the nail on the head when it came to the personalities and the preconception of where these guys are going to go and what we can do. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about why you believe it's so important for investigators to take advantage of open source intelligence. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. As you know, we're broadcasting remotely today. Um, we're all going through a crisis. Every single person on this planet is affected by it. And High FM has a 24-hour helpline. And during this time where people are feeling most alone, most isolated, that helpline is there for them. Make use of it and ensure that... Your loved ones are looked after during this trying time. Just because they're isolated doesn't mean you can't communicate with them during this digital age. People just need to hear your voice, maybe see your face via Skype or via video messaging. But let's all look after each other. Let's be kind during this this very, very trying time. Craig, how did you get involved in investigations and how did you make the move from traditional knock-on-door type investigations into the whole cyber world? Grief. Uh Long story. Um, I am that old. Uh, well, I started out actually very young. I started my career in close protection and then moved out of the security industry into a corporate environment. And within the corporate environment, I was doing market intelligence and comparative intelligence, uh, understanding the impact of one company versus another. And from there, I decided corporate life really wasn't my thing. And I moved down to the private sector. And initially I started out in IT, but the, the, the need for corporate intelligence and for uh, digital security just kept growing and sort of veered off that way and eventually led me down the path, as you know, as a forensic investigator where I specialize in digital forensics and cybercrime. And the open source part has always been part of that. One of my first designations when I started early in my career was um, going through microfish at the different newspapers, sitting at the archives, going through microfish screen after screen after screen, and then manually writing down information that was viable and usable out of older newspaper newspaper articles and identifying which journalists had worked on which stories and how they could assist to maybe give us another part of the puzzle or a different perspective. And I think coupling that with technology, I've always had a love for technology, and it was just a case of putting the two together, really. Um, and open source has become a key, key part of that. Even within the Ford investigations, uh, we use open source tools and technologies to give us an insight to lifestyle analysis. Does the person's lifestyle match their income? Um, is anything out of sync there? Should we be drilling in further? Uh, we look at people's movements and their, their, their habits and their personalities. Uh, sometimes the work's actually quite mundane. You know, a lot of time uh, companies will just send us CVs in and say we're going to appoint this person to a senior post within the company. 
have a look at them, look at the online life, look at the digital footprint. Is there anything we should be concerned about? That kind of things that you're looking there is, you know, have they got contentious opinions? How vocal are they? How, how do they interact with other people? Do they have the right professional profile to go with what the company is actually looking for? And that's something that's become really important to companies these days in the age of social media is understanding the person before they take them into the fold. Will they fit in with the corporate culture? Um, and are there any contentious opinions or biases that they need to be aware of. I mean, let's face it, but none of us wants to employ the next Penny Sparrow, for example. Um, we do not want to be the employer of somebody who's got some really off-kilter uh, opinions that they're going to voice on social media that are potentially going to damage our business and our reputation. Very fascinating. Now, we need to obviously discuss the book itself. It's a book that I've gone out publicly and endorsed because I believe it can really help um, investigators. A lot of investigators who are start, starting off in our industry, especially um, that are just coming into the private sector, haven't actually made use of open source intelligence. Yep. And obviously with investigations now being a, listed as a scarce skill by the insurance CETA, etc. More and more people are moving into the industry, and we want to professionalize yep. the industry. People say, but why do you share this type of information? And you and I are very vocal in sharing information because we want to professionalize the industry as a whole. What has the, the response been to the book from the industry itself? Ooh, uh, mixed. Uh, if I'm honest, yeah, there, there's been quite a couple of people that have looked at it and said, oh, dear Lord, no, you should never be sharing this information. Don't tell anybody. Um, I can understand that. Um, I don't agree with it, but I can understand it. Respect to everyone's own opinion. Uh, by, and, by, by and large, uh, it's been a really, really good and positive response. We've had guys phoning me up saying, but... I actually didn't know I could do this. I didn't think I could do this. Um, I've had a lot of people that have worked through the book and have come back and said, but I'm not a geek. I'm not a computer person, but this makes sense. And I've just closed the case because, you know, the book itself is, it's still, it's basics. It's foundation level stuff. And there's about a hundred I think there's 106 different tools listed in the book and explanations of how to use them and case studies to understand how the information that you're going to get there is going to integrate back to your investigation to go to the next step. And what you were saying now about uh, creating pro better professional standards with the industry speaks to the very, very heart of it. You and I both know there are a lot of guys out there that will skirt the line. They will acquire itemized billing history, sometimes even people's bank account, uh, transactional data, and they will cross the line. They, they'll cross a lot of lines, break a couple of laws in furtherance of the greater good, so to speak. Um, it's still laws, and you can't enforce laws by breaking them. With the tools that we're talking about here, you actually don't need to do that. You don't need the person's itemized banking. You don't need the itemized billing. There are plenty of other lateral pieces of information that are out there. you just got to know where to look for them. Um, what, what we stress to people is that it's not about the data that you create. It's about the data that's created about you. My dad, for example, is 85 this year. 
And my dad is not a technology person to the point that his DSTV remote, I've put a big piece of masking tape on it and I've cut out the buttons that he should use and ignore the bloody rest. Otherwise, he keeps resetting the things. He does does not do technology. But I can still go online and I can find information about my dad. Why? Because the optometrist is not very careful with how his data is stored online because uh, the mechanic where he has his car serviced keeps record of all his clients, and he uses online services for that that do not protect that data. Uh, he's bought and sold properties over his life, so there's data relative to that. And he's 85 years old. He doesn't touch a computer, but the data is still there because it's created around him and about him. If you think about it, every day as you move around uh, Joburg more so than Cape Town, Everywhere you go, every complex you go into, there's a guy going to scan your uh, license disc and he's going to scan your driver's license on the way in the gate. Now, that's a pretty reasonable thing to do these days in terms of access control and good security. But let's be reasonable. How long do you actually need to keep that data? A week, two weeks, three weeks, maybe a month. If nothing's gone wrong in that complex that you need to go and look that person up after a month, why are you still keeping the data? And I found companies that the data is being kept on site, not remotely, and is stored for up to two years. Now, that's vulnerable. Why do you keep that data? In terms of poppy compliance, obviously, one would hope that that will change as poppies now enforced, and people only keep data as long as it's needed. Uh, but I've become very cautious with my privacy over the years. And as much as people are saying, well, give me your name and your address. No. What do you need it for? Why do you need it? How are you going to store it? And where's that data going to stay? Because I need people to respect my privacy as well. True that. And I've had many an argument with security officers where they want too much information and they then want to invoke the um, right of admission is reserved, but the fact remains is right to privacy is is protected in terms of Section 14 of the Constitution. We're going to take our final break of the day. When we come back, we're going to find out more about how you can get a copy of Craig's book. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. You're listening to Confidential Brief. My name is Chad Thomas, and today I've been in conversation with Craig Pedersen about his book, An Investigator's Guide to Open Source Intelligence. If it sounds like our mojo wasn't quite on today, well, we're facing a global crisis, and we've had to do this um, interview remotely. I'm not in studio. Craig's not in studio. Um, uh, and most definitely, my guest is not in studio. We all dotted around the country chatting to one another and making sure that this broadcast is live. Mr. Pedersen, if people want to be able to get their hands on this book, which isn't just valuable for investigators wanting to investigate open source intelligence, but also opens the eyes of the public at large as to how information is so readily available, how do they get hold of your book and, and some of these incredible tips? Well, thanks, Chad. Um at the moment, we're busy going through the listing process, getting it listed on Take-A-Lot. Um, I'm hopeful, well, I was hopeful it would have been done early this week, but obviously with COVID-19, everything's happening a little bit slower. 
Um, so it'll probably be available from Take a Lot, I'd say by eh, first or second week of next month. In the interim, though, if anyone would like a copy, they're more than welcome to just uh, drop my office an email, and they can actually send it directly to my email address, which is Craig C R A I G at TCG Tango Charlie Golf Forensics dot co dot za, and we'll happily sort them out with a book and have it couriered across to them. Yeah, it's got a wider appeal. You know, we've had quite a couple of people that have purchased it that are not in the security industry per se, but they're investigative journalists, they're researchers that need to learn to get a little bit more out of the internet in terms of information and depth of information and are actually just looking for guidance in other research techniques and methodologies and seem to have found some good use for it in that regard. Well, Craig, I thank you for joining us today. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. Um, I'm going to be uploading all of your particulars to the Confidential Brief um, radio show on Facebook with a hyperlink to your site and how people can find out more about the book. And I'd like to thank you for all the, the valuable tips that you've shared with us today. Chad, thanks so much. It's a pleasure, Matt. And again, thanks very much for having me on the show and for accommodating me via Skype. Um, different way to do an interview, but I think it's worked pretty damn well. It has. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in today. To our studio engineer, Craig Guthrie, thank you for um, being part of this very new um, way of communicating. To DJ Flo, who sets everything up, thank you so much. Um, obviously, for the foreseeable future, this is how our shows are going to be. We won't be able to engage as actively as we did with our listeners previously due to these challenges, but we will be trying to bring you as many live shows as possible. Again, uh, rest in peace, Sol Kersner, rest in peace, Kenny Rogers, sad weekend, two great people have passed away. But on a, on a, on a positive note, a highlight for us is that news came in late last week that this particular show, Confidential Brief, has been nominated and is a finalist now in the South African Radio Awards for Best Daytime Show. So thank you all for that. Uh, we really appreciate it. You never know. We could be um, the winner this year of the 2020 Best Daytime Show in South Africa. You've been listening to Confidential Brief. I'll be back same time, same place next week.